He was a wrestler, a drunken brawler, a con artist, a moocher. He was a crook. He pushed the legitimacy of wrestling to the breaking point, and possibly a murderer. He was Theobode Bauer, and his story is fucking wild. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. To no surprise, but hey, maybe you are surprised. It's another episode of Pro Wrestling History Nerds. We are back and we are ready to talk about history. We are ready to party and have a good time. And we can't wait to take you with us. My name is Nick Gossard. I am a professional wrestling promoter. I am a professional wrestling booker. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. I cannot wait to delve into the past and tell you some crazy stories about wrestling's rich, deep history. And I am here with the star scream to my shockwave. I am here with Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you today? I'm really mad that we still have to deal with that dick Megatron, but Chongo digresses. We are still here, man. Pro wrestling history nerds taking a journey, a time traveling journey through the debauchery and the history of professional wrestling. Truth is stranger than fiction. And the truth is we're still here, we're still kicking, and we thank everyone that has downloaded and given a five-star review. And uh, yeah, it's been pretty awesome. Speaking of which, yes, if you listen on iTunes, for those of you still using iTunes and iPhones, we really appreciate those of you who give us a five-star review or leave a review in words. Please keep doing so, we need that. And it's not just so we feel cool and tough and whatever. It's for the algorithm, it's so the internet knows that we are a good show, we are a popular show, people dig us, people interact, and push us a little bit harder, so please do that, we appreciate it, it's what helps us take things to the next level. And speaking of taking things to the next level, I'm excited about this story because we're almost doing a callback to the beginning of this show because we're going to be talking about Theobode Bauer, or Theobode Bauer. I do not know how to pronounce his name. I tried looking it up on YouTube. I could find no references. So if I'm mispronouncing his name, I apologize to his ghost and to the ghosts of all Theobode or Theobode Bowers. And before we jump into this story, some of you may say, hey guys, I saw this article that says something different. Or, hey guys, I, according to Wikipedia, this happened instead of that. Or, hey, I have a paid subscription to the LA Times and I read his obituary and it told the story this way. And guess what? You may be right. We may be right. Somebody completely unrelated may be right because we are doing the best we can with what we have to work with. I am reading books. I am looking up old articles. I am finding crazy stories. Maybe we solved a murder. We'll talk about that here in a bit. But. Pro wrestling history is an oral tradition. It wasn't well documented until very recently. It's always two people down the line telling a crazy story about something that somebody who's been dead for 20 years did. We're doing the best we can. Thank you for joining us on this journey and we're gonna have some gosh darn fun tonight. Pardon the language. Are you excited, Chongo? I couldn't be more excited because we're bringing it back to the beginning of where this glorious journey into pro wrestling's past started the counter the counterpiece to Muldoon like you said we are we are operating on a Tarantino-esque timeline here when it comes to putting it together but we have come back full circle to where we started we can call this story an example of the Roshimon effect because anytime a story is told that involves multiple people you're going to have multiple point of views 
multiple stories, multiple lessons to learn, because everything is subjective. So we talked about Muldoon being the upstanding, respectable, first face of professional wrestling that really broke through to the mainstream. But right behind him, right before him, the man who lost the title to William Muldoon, we have a French wrestler named Theobode Bauer, a Greco-Roman wrestler, who has possibly the craziest story that we have examined in this podcast so far. That's a, that's quite a build, old chap. I mean, to say that after all we have been through, the, the Arctic hustles of Gotch, all of the exploits of crossing state and county lines on trains to run shows with paid off sheriffs that will play ball and, and to, you know, you're, you're, you're billing, you're billing quite a, a high order of expectation. So I'm excited to see where this goes, man. And something that's important to remember when we start talking about matches in this man's career is for the most part, wrestling was a legitimate sport, just like boxing was for the most part, a legitimate sport, just like track and field or tug of war for some reason was a legitimate sport. There were no athletic commissions for the most part. There were no governing bodies. So it was very easy for people to take dives, for people to work matches, but it was still presented and had the expectation of being a real sport, especially when it came to gambling. And that's why this man is so important because he had a huge effect. I mean, almost a, um, you know, shoeless Joe Jackson level effect on gambling on professional sports. Yeah, he, he operated at a time when professional wrestling was very much akin to professional boxing. For the most part, it was perceived as legitimate. The places where it was not, was not so much a work in the sense as we know now, it was more of the fix was in uh, for gambling type purposes. So this was a time when you had to be a bad motherfucker to be at the top of the food chain. Exactly, because this is the time of legitimate shooters, as we say in the wrestling business. People who could legitimately wrestle anyone in the world. You had to be world class to even get within sniffing distance of a title, even if it was a fixed match, a fixed fight, a work, however you want to put it. But you still had to be a badass. And this guy was an incredible badass, no matter how his career panned out. The early life of Theobode Bauer is either unknown or unverifiable because it's only his story being told to the media for the sake of hyping matches. This is a man who we only have his biography as autobiography, and especially in show business, you have to take it a grain of salt when somebody tells you about their youth, about their career, about their past, because they're selling tickets, not telling an objective truth. Yes, but it's also one of the earliest examples of a professional wrestler's backstory that has been built up and added to to make to present as larger than life, but also uh, the real life story of Bauer is just as crazy and bonkers as anything that could be made up in a backstory. So I tend to lean towards believing a man who's had such a wild life, you know? The earliest story found by wrestling historian Phil Lyons from January 1869, the Beast of the Jungles, Foet, and the muscular Apollon, Bauer, got into a drunken fistfight in public. Both were working for Claude Eugene Rosinol Rollin, 
most likely the first real wrestling promoter who organized the top French wrestlers of the time into a touring troupe. He would give it the showbiz razzle-dazzle to the traditionally traveling carnival spectacle while also promoting boxing, fencing, strongman acts, and various other events. He was able to book contracted wrestlers into long-term feuds, bringing the fans, the marks if you will, back to the theater of the burlesque wherever they're holding it time and time again, and even had championship belts made. It is arguable that this man is the birth of professional wrestling promotions as we know them now. I had never heard of this guy until I read about this, and the guy's fascinating. We'll probably do an episode about him at some point, but this is a man who finally took all the stars, brought them under one roof, put them into storylines, put them into championship feuds, and created pro wrestling as we know it today. Yeah, and he's getting press. He's getting press for the way that he's uh, having his wrestlers interact they're they're getting billed as these archetypal characters in the in the press write-up and it, it it definitely smells of the work you know you can tell that that a promoter has his hands all over that this was the first time that wrestling became an organized spectacle that you came back to see not a traveling spectacle that came to you instead of it being like we're going to pop in we're going to do a show match we're going to have our shooter our hooker or whatever do an open challenge to the crowd maybe there's a mark maybe there's a stick we talked about it in our carnival episode you know how it works this was the first time they would set up base in theaters in a burlesque house where every saturday or whatever people came to see how things advanced because there were feuds there were rematches there were storylines things that did not exist at that time and i think a lot of people will be shocked to find out that these date back to the mid 1800s and what's very interesting is the way that a lot of storylines that we consider old hat or are so normal now that they're considered trope if they're done these things were organically figured out through trial and error in this era this is when all of these things were being developed and understood in real time and it's fascinating because this again part of what makes this so such a fascinating you know deep dive and study is that this is a time when it was presented as a, a competition and that makes it so much more interesting the way that the storylines played into it and that's why it was probably very annoying when his top two stars got into a drunken fight in public that involved biting and finger bending, which let's face it, while effective, is not a cool thing to do. Things went to court and it was up to uh, Rossinol Rollin to pay the fine to get his stars out of hot water and put them back on the stage where they belong. And it was soon after that that Theobald Bauer came to the United States. He arrived in America in the summer of 1874 and found a home in San Francisco. His first match on American soil was against Mr. Gerichten, I probably fucked that up, it's kind of a German name, on July 2nd, which Bauer won at Platts Hall. Always nice to win your first match in a new country. Theobald Bauer had a Greco-Roman wrestling background, like most French wrestlers and continental wrestlers at the time. Um, We've been talking a lot about the difference between Greco-Roman and catch-as-catch-can or even collar and elbow, especially through our Gotch versus Hackenschmidt series. But just as a quick recap, 
What's the difference between Cassius Catch-Can and Greco-Roman? There's an emphasis in Greco-Roman and upper body ties and overhooks and underhooks and, a, and a, a style of grappling without using the lower body, no sweeps, no, no trips. And it's really grueling and not very aesthetically pleasing style. Yeah, the, uh, the early Greco-Roman wrestling matches as pro wrestling in America as much as we try to lionize our history and these huge matches, to a modern eye, they would be boring as fuck because we would have two men grappling for over three hours, sometime to a draw, all in body locks, head locks, back locks, fighting off the throw. A great challenge physically, a great challenge mentally, a great challenge athletically, absolutely. Also a great challenge to watch and be interested in, as opposed to Catch as Catch Can, which took off mostly on the back of Greco-Roman being boring. Yeah, Catch as Catch Can emphasizes submissions. It emphasizes being dangerous and using a much more complete arsenal of grappling in its in its skill set. You can use legs and trips and sweeps and your legs in the submission game. There's aspects to it. I mean. Greco-Roman is so restrictive compared to Catch's Catch Can. Stylistically and aesthetically, it's just not nearly as pleasing to the average fan. And when you talk about the excitement that submissions add, Catch's Catch Can just took, took wrestling to the next level. And it doesn't necessarily mean that one is better than the other when they match up. One's clearly more exciting to the viewer, but if you want a modern day comparison on how one works versus the other, Google, or YouTube more likely, Randy Couture to see how Greco-Roman wrestling works in a fight. It's a lot of control. It's a hard thing to escape. It's somebody who's going to essentially, you know, try to control your body, try to control your footwork, and just wear you down into nothing, as opposed to catch as catch can, which we could very much, uh, granted a couple decades removed, Look up Frank Shamrock. You know, Frank Shamrock was an amazing catch-as-catch-can wrestler. I mean, he came from Pancrase, but that is essentially catch-as-catch-can wrestling, where it's nonstop submission moves, nonstop submission moves. It's submission, mostly over position strategy in a grappling match. Yeah, and that's the primary difference. Greco is positional-based grappling. Catch-as-catch-can is also positional grappling, but with an emphasis on submissions as well. So it really makes it much more of a deadly style, especially in a match format because it gives you multiple ways to win, not just pinning your opponent. Bauer was immediately a sensation in the Bay Area, defeating all challengers. A lot of local talent, he would step in, he would put them away. His name was starting to mean something. Then on November 14th, Still in 1874, he had his first of many matches against Professor William Miller, which were athletically dazzling, earned tons of money, and damaged the reputation of wrestling to the point that the mainstream press eventually went after them. William Miller was an English-born, Australian-raised wrestler who held championships not only in wrestling, but in boxing, fencing, and weightlifting. Wow. He would also be the final tour opponent for the tragically brilliant and drunk Clarence Whistler years later, who died in Australia 
on a tour with Miller. Uh, Clarence Whistler, another amazing collar and elbow slash catches catch can wrestler. We talked about him in the Muldoon episode. The guy was as skilled as skilled could be. Uh, William Miller, if you look him up on Google, you find a photo of him. He looks like, in the few images we have of the man, like a heavily mustached drunken stepdad. But he <laughs> was ultimately one of the greatest badasses the country of Australia produced during that era. Yeah, and that's, it's really remarkable what he was able to come across and do. He, he established himself as one of the elite wrestlers of the era and truly an iconic personality at that time. The match was advertised as Miller being brought all the way from Australia to face the unstoppable Bauer. Even though in the late 1800s, there would have been no time to make such arrangements. The two Greco-Roman wrestlers put on a fantastic match, maybe even too fantastic. The match was declared a draw when both men secured a fall each but couldn't finish in the third, Bauer claiming a groin injury and Miller being a gentleman and not wanting to win by default. One local paper claimed there was no tomfooling or shin kicking in this business, but a well-sustained, fair contest between well-developed, athletic, and powerfully muscled men. Such wrestling, say sporting men, has seldom been witnessed. So do you think that that third round was an intentional place that they were trying to get? Do you think that happened organically? Do you think that they looked at what they had accomplished already and then decided to, you know, peel it back and call it in and, and capitalize on the rematch? My carny senses are tingling and I only have one word for this. And what do you think that word is? Hippodrome! Yeah, I have a feeling these men had a plan in place well before their first match. A rematch was booked for December 8th, 1874 at Platts Hall and in front of 1,200, you heard me right, 1,200 fans, Bauer defeated Miller in two falls in one hour, 16 minutes. Bauer was awarded the Pacific Coast Championship, which mutated through marketing into the Greco-Roman world title as time went on. Yeah, that's awesome because that, that gives me the impression that they were really working for that rematch. Two falls, two to zero, over an hour. That sounds like a pretty epic struggle and not the way that you would put it together if you were trying to trying to do a work unless you were trying to set up the rubber match which is exactly what happened miller almost immediately complained about losing claiming that bauer was greased up and he couldn't get a proper grip and demanded a rematch there was much speculation on the cheating and the possibilities of a rematch it was finally decided to be a three out of five contest greco-roman rules the match was set for May 28, 1875. Tickets were damn near double what they had been for their previous encounters, and they sold fast. Beautiful. Well done. Uh, talk about one of the prototype examples of building a fight, building a trilogy, and and they cashed in, man. This is this is glorious. Yes, this was light years ahead of their American cousins. They came from that French tradition where they had kind of set up a little bit of a semi-permanent base so they could yeah. pull shit like this and went from there. The bettors and bookies were salivating with thousands of dollars in cash on the line as the match started. It's disappointing to lose a bet, 
but I can't imagine losing a bet when you've obviously been swindled. Whether it had been a long con or they just decided to make one last payday out of their rivalry, the match was obviously a work to everyone. It was prearranged, and obviously so. The judges and audience had nothing but disgust for what they saw as it was declared a time limit draw in the fifth round. Both wrestlers were immediately kicked out of the San Francisco Olympic Club for fixing matches. They decided to take their show on the road and wrestled each other coast to coast in front of packed houses that weren't quite up to speed on their scam. After a two out of three falls match for what they were now billing as the Greco-Roman World Championship in front of a sold-out house in Cincinnati, a San Francisco newspaper printed, Bauer and Miller cleaned up quite a nice sum in Cincinnati last night by one of their wrestling displays. Well, it sounds like they figured out the formula to take the show on the road. They, they came up with an angle, they came up with a match, could work in front of a new audience, in front of a fresh territory, and again, we're looking at a prototype example of that type of thing. Um, it's really unfortunate, though, that in that blow-off match and the rubber match of their trilogy, that it was so poorly received. I, I, I don't understand how they were able to work it so cleanly, especially in the first match, and it'd be so obvious in the in the third. That's that's pretty unfortunate. But I'm sure they were testing out this thing before they took it on the road. And keep in mind. We are not necessarily judging in the negative. We are from the pro wrestling tradition. We love a good con, a good scam, a oh, good yeah. heist as much as anyone. So we do not look at these men with disgust. We look at them with admiration. Appreciation, man. I mean, this is, you're talking about carny elite creating the scams that have become old hat today. This is beautiful. And as they toured, more damning was a piece written in the Brooklyn Eagle on November 14th, 1877. There is probably no sport before the public, not even exempting professional billiards playing, in which there has been so much regular hippodrome and crookedness practiced as in the wrestling arena with the last two or three years. There has scarcely been an important contest in which the result has not been known beforehand. A system of humbug that's right, humbug. A system of humbug has been carried on in the form of creating a supposed better rivalry between prominent wrestlers. In order to get up an excitement, and matches have been arranged, which have been alleged to be for thousands of dollars aside, when not a dollar has been put on either side. The contest being one for the gate money alone, and that is equally divided. The betting decides as to which party should win. The men have been found guilty of it, and in one case the knavery was exposed out west, but still the people are being gulled by the so-called championship wrestling matches. The latest contest in the wrestling arena was that between Miller and Bauer at Boston last night, in which Miller was defeated, Bauer winning in one fall. The usual $1,000 challenge followed, and another profitable gate money match will be arranged. Pools were sold at Boston on the match, in which Miller was the favorite, with those not behind the scores, he being the strongest man and the best wrestler. The fact is nothing has been such a blight on the honest sport as the curse of the pool box. Well, it appears the dirt sheet is nothing new as well, old chap, because it sounds like the printed word attempting to bury the business is old hat as well. I'm really, you know, what a hater. Why, you gotta, why, why are they so upset about what these guys are doing? They should appreciate good business when they see it. I guess this is a, a time when everything was 
on the up and up and maybe they didn't understand the entertainment value of what was being brought to them. But I'm really disappointed that this reporter had such a hard on for, for exposing the business as they say. Well, and the Brooklyn Eagle was one of the greatest supporters of professional wrestling at this time and for some time before and some time after. So they had been covering, giving front page, massive local press in New York for legitimate professional wrestling. And they turned a blind eye to a lot of shit. They turned a blind eye to a lot. But this series of matches between Bauer and Miller were getting so egregious that they eventually had to say something because it was making everyone involved in the sport of wrestling look bad. So this is one of those great moments for people who, for some reason, think that everyone thought pro wrestling was real in the 60s, 70s, 80s until you know, Vince McMahon said it's just entertainment. Wrestling has been exposed as a work for over a century. Yeah, these guys are doing Cornette's gimmick a hundred years before he had his podcast. You know, nothing is new under the sun, including the Hippodrome, including the dirt sheet, and including taking it on the road, man. And that's what these guys did. And they were pioneers and I tipped my cap to them. Oh no, it was, it was fantastic because this is before the internet. This is before the radio. This is before the daily news where you really got national information. These are guys who are working a sporting circuit and were able to burn out a town and move on to the next one, make a bunch of money till everybody figures out their bullshit, move on to the next one where there was really no warning because nobody knew what was happening in San Francisco at that time in San Diego. So you were able to go city to city, fleecing the marks, doing the old carny tricks, the things we have talked about several times in this podcast and for some reason we admire because we are strange men and make a fortune doing so. I can only wish that I knew what it was to be on the road in the territory days or back in these wild west carny days because you're exactly right without the internet without even the radio every new territory you went the the con was fresh and that is a you know yeah maybe maybe there's something wrong with us for appreciating the level of villainy and carny con man it takes to master something like that but this is glorious. And they continue to work their program all over the place, sometimes with both claiming the championship when working other wrestlers in other cities. They even toured Cuba together, and when they returned in 1879, a hungry up-and-comer named William Muldoon was chomping at the bit to face off against the professor in the ring. And there were other stories that came up between that and his match with Muldoon. Case in point, July 20th, 1875, the Lyon County Times, Silver City, Silver City, Nevada, and I quote, the grand wrestling exhibition given at Piper's Opera House was anything but high-toned or entertaining. The chief Roman wrestler Bauer being as drunk as the maternal ancestor of a musician's dog. <laughs> how is that for a fucking insult? <laughs> it appears to our reporter that Bauer, Miller, Rainier, another friend of Bauer, and the other muscle men from the Bay have hoodooed the public sufficiently to be left severely alone. <laughs> uh, all press is good press, I guess. I mean, that's a hell of a headline, man. Yeah, they whoever wrote that in much shorter 
terms, dunked on them way harder than the Brooklyn Eagle writer. Yeah, that was awesome. Or this one from the DC Evening Star, August 4th, 1876, which gives us one of the few descriptions of Theobode Bauer. He is a magnificent specimen of physical manhood, as strong as Hercules and graceful as Apollo. He has dark hair, dark mustache, brown eyes, splendid complexion, and very prepossessing manners. He is 30 years old, weighs 172 pounds, is five feet nine and one quarter inches in height, measures 42 and a half inches around the chest with biceps almost 16 inches. He was born in Melhausen, Alsace. I, I, I don't speak French, so I have definitely fucked that up. I should have maybe looked that up on YouTube. I am disrespectful to the French. It is just my way as a Jew. Uh, Alsace, Alsace, however you want to say it. His father was himself a wrestler, and his son inherited an iron constitution and a constant desire to exhibit his immense strength. He has been a public wrestler since he was 16 years old. At first, he traveled with a circus company and delighted the spectators with wrestling contests which were not by any means tame, as the best man received the best salary and each would do his best. He was considered a lightweight wrestler until he was 22 years of age, and since then has been wrestling heavyweight. I don't know, maybe hit a growth spurt, you know, had a, his first protein shake, who can say? After the Franco-Prussian War, he went to Belgium where he engaged in several contests, always victorious. After a sojourn there, of about 18 months, he went to London, and from there, hence to California. Here he engaged in many notable contests. It was here that he met Miller, the Australian giant, for the first time. Granted, these are all his own descriptions of his early life, but holy shit, at that time and place, that would move some fucking tickets. Yeah, that was a hell of a write-up. I mean, it's impressive no matter where it came from, but yeah. How do you not want to back that guy, especially going against the foreign menace from Australia, from down under? And he himself was a foreign menace from France, but at that point, France and America had a much better relationship. France still riding high on providing most of the arms and resources for the American Revolution. But this is a weird thing I always find at this time where you would look at the tail of the tape, which now mostly is height, weight, reach. Yeah. Back in these days, you would have, it would be like four columns involving like calf width and, yeah, and hips chest and like <laughs> buttocks crushing strength where you could like, you know, open up a, bo a bottle of beer with your butthole. I don't know. It's It was just, they really took some measurements. It was like they brought in a tailor to investigate yeah, yeah, totally. how big this guy was before they would have a match. Yes. The origins of the tail of the tape was when they actually measured you for the suit in case you got killed in the ring. Totally just made that up, but it sounded good for what we were talking about. I agree. Furthering a quotation from later in the article, one of his favorite postures to prevent a fall is bearing his weight on his heels and on the back of his head, making a bridge which allows daylight to appear under his shoulders. When in this position, he will withstand the utmost endeavors of his antagonist to press his shoulders to the ground for a long time. Those who believe these contests to be prearranged and call them put-up jobs claim this is impossible. Well, that's a pretty impressive description of, of a bridge off your back. And um, I, I'm surprised that that's the takeaway impression that this reporter got from watching, watching uh, uh, Bauer Russell, because typically a Greco guy is going to be dominant and on top, you know? And I, I really like the description of a bridge, which is 
fairly common in pro wrestling today. It's a great way to have a very strong neck. It's an important workout for grappling of any kind. But I like how they describe this as proof that pro wrestling has to be real. He did a bridge. He stood on his on the top of his head and his toes. He has a strong neck. Checkmate, doubters. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you can't push somebody down when they're doing a bridge off the back of their neck, I mean, that's an inarguable fact that that's a competitive. I mean, it, it clearly proved the point. On August 5th, 1876, the National Republican, a Washington, D.C. paper, covered a match against Louis Carteron. An audience exclusively of gentlemen, very respectable in appearance and number, assembled at the National Theater to witness for the first time in Washington a genuine Greco-Roman wrestling match between Theobald Bauer and Louis Carteron, both Frenchmen and perhaps the most distinguished exponents of the science in the world. Bauer was billed as the world champion, while Carteron was billed more modestly as the champion of France. As we talk about this a lot on this show, titles for the most part didn't exist. You could bring somebody in from Texas and say they're the champion of New Mexico, and who could say otherwise? The internet doesn't exist. It's all about the showbiz razzle-dazzle. Whatever you put on the poster is true by default. And the Marks bought it. And Bauer won it with two of three falls. And a further quote from the paper, Bauer is the most honest of the two, and he proved himself ready for all of Carteron's tricks, any of which would have thrown an ordinary man over the moon. Over the moon, you say? I'm curious where they thought the moon was at this point. I don't know where science had advanced at the late 1800s, but I also love the description of the audience of being exclusively of gentlemen, very respectable in appearance and number, where it's like a lot of a lot of very, very, very white people showed up wearing nicer clothes than the wrestlers could afford themselves. Yeah, I thought that was just a cover story that it was at a brothel or something mm. like that. Uh, later on, uh, November 10th, 1876, defeats champion of Germany, William Haygater in Toronto in three straight falls. I could find nothing on this champion. I kind of have a feeling this guy was probably from Idaho and they just told him to do an accent to grow a uh, twirly mustache. Uh, what was the German boxer in Mike Tyson's punch out? Uh, Soda Popinski. That was the Russian one. We'll get back to this later. Yes. But yeah, I just kind of have a feeling this is a guy who really <laughs> had no acclaim. He might've just been a tough local told to do a gimmick to make it more exotic. What an awesome name, though. Hey, Gator. On July 24th, 1876, in Baltimore, William Miller, reported as an Englishman, defeated Bauer in two out of three falls. I couldn't find a lot on this guy, so it might have been a legitimate shoot match. It might have been a work. It's just this guy didn't really uh, amount to much in the public eye. Who can say? Yeah, uh, records his body, and it's, it's interesting because it just opens up this whole Pandora's box of... Who was this guy? Where did he go? How did he how did he beat such a decorated grappler? And as we've discussed in previous episodes, any fans of MMA, boxing, contemporary combat sports will know sometimes the most heralded champion or contender in a company will take the goofiest loss to a refrigerator repairman who just got lucky with a hook. It happens. Anybody can win any fight. Not necessarily the odds are on their side, but anything can happen once fists start flying, once throws start grappling. And that was a weird phrase, but I'm gonna go with it. 
shit happens. That's really what it comes down to. It's kind of like that uh, that title fight that Gotch had where he lost to some goofball by running into the ring post and getting pinned. Was it a work? Was he overconfident? Was it a fluke? Who can say? Same story here. And combat sports are unlike any other form of sport competition in that you can essentially be up 55 to zero on the scoreboard and lose on one play, as it were. You can be dominating your opponent, whether it's wrestling, boxing, whatever it is, and they score that lucky fall on you, that lucky punch, that lucky pinfall, and you can, no matter how dominant you are, the opportunity to lose outright at any moment is always available. And that's what makes fighting and, and competitive, you know, combat arts and combat sports so interesting. Because you will always have the Mike Tyson versus Buster Douglas. You'll always have the Georges St. Pierre versus Matt Sarah. You will always have these contests where somebody who is on paper unbeatable, whether they showed up lazy, they showed up having taken it easy in the training, assuming they could steamroll a guy, or maybe it's just their chin was in the wrong place at the wrong time as an uppercut came around. But either way, they end up on a loss that nobody would have expected. This could have been one of those. It could have been a work that just didn't pan out box office wise. No one can say, don't have a time machine, cannot confirm. But one that I thought was kind of fun was in September 7th, 1876, Theobald Bauer and another man got into a fight that resulted in a pistol being fired, but no one injured. This happened during the heated aftermath of a boxing match that ended after seven rounds when the light guard, which I assume is a like the National Guard, like a state military organization, arrived with 66 men to stop the illegal boxing match. Because remember, during these times, boxing was illegal in nearly every state. And according to the Cincinnati Daily Star, they were trying to find a place to continue the fight at a later date that month. <laughs> Imagine being in this situation. You are watching a boxing match. It is illegal, but it's kind of an open secret like it was in most of America and England at that time. When suddenly here comes the fucking National Guard in uniform, armed in number. They stop the boxing match. Some shit goes down. Some famous wrestler gets in a fight with some dude and a pistol gets fired but doesn't hit anybody. Holy shit, what an evening. It sounds like an average night at Triple L. By the way, get your tickets available. No, no, just kidding. Sorry. Cut, cut, take two. Yeah, that sounds like some good old fashioned heat to me, though. You got the National Guard coming in, pistols being pulled, fights in the parking lot. It sounds like it sounds like they got nothing but good press, and I'm sure this only helped the endeavor. This is something I really love researching this time period where the papers are covering fights, prize fights that were illegal, but every yeah. sports reporter knew about them, covered it. Every major paper was talking about boxing that was illegal there, but it was an open secret. It was covered by the press and it was only very seldomly busted by law enforcement like this time or when we talked about William Muldoon, the uh, the last major title defense by John L. Sullivan, where they had to hop a train and go to another state. For the most part, it's kind of like alcohol during prohibition. It was illegal, but everybody was doing it. Yeah, and imagine the gall of having the press know about this illegal event and then the cops have to not know about it and then read about it in the paper. I'm sure they probably squeeze the reporters for information because 
that would really, I'm sure that really pissed them off. Oh, absolutely. And I have a feeling in most cases when the cop showed up, it was either a bribe wasn't made or, you know, some uh, socialite was going, oh, think of the children. And then the governor had to say, oh, Jesus Christ, just send Colonel Butthole to go fucking break it up. They can finish it next weekend. I do not give a shit. I can actually watch it then. And in the April 17th, 1877, Hillside Standard, a Michigan paper, they covered the match in Detroit between Theobald Bauer and Colonel James McLaughlin at Whitney's Opera House in Detroit. The match was mixed rules, one fall Greco-Roman, the second catches catch can, and the third to be determined by a coin toss. The referee was Henry Hill, and again, no, not the Henry Hill from Goodfellas, the owner of Henry Hill Saloon in New York City, where many wrestling stars were discovered in this era. McLaughlin won the catch round, and the coin toss made the third catch rules as well, and he went home the winner. The result was hailed by tremendous cheering, and the large crowd quietly dispersed, well satisfied with the decision and the results of the contest, which is a nice way to say, thank God they didn't riot this time. Well, it sounds like the crowd went home happy with the finish, and the colonel had superior recipe with the upper body lock that day. And this is one of those matches where I can't say one way or the other whether it was a shoot, whether it was a work, but the important thing, as always, is the crowd didn't see through it, the crowd was entertained, they went home without calling bullshit, getting mad, or storming the ring trying to kill everyone. And sometimes that's more important. On December 23rd, 1877, the New York Herald covered another one. On a Christmas Day show titled The Modern Gladiators, filled with wrestling, boxing, fencing, strongman acts, Bauer was advertised to wrestle a 500-pound bear named Marion, two out of three falls for $200. I have no idea if it was mixed rules, catch-as-catch-can, or Greco-Roman. I don't know how you teach rules to a bear. I assume it was sumo rules where you just had to push the goddamn thing off of the platform. Marion Bear. Re. No, did he get buried by the bear, Marion Barry? I don't know. Did he create a new flavor? I don't even know how you approach that. What would you do against a bear? Would you try to choke it? I really don't know the strategy of fighting a bear. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think if it was on its hind legs, how, how good its balance is, whether you can shoot for those low ankle pick takedowns, whether you want to try to get its back, ride it like a horse, go for its neck. If anyone out there has wrestled a bear, please email us. We want to hear your story and we want to hear your strategies. Yes, I would definitely be interested in your tactical approach to grappling a bear. Chongo digresses. On May 23rd, 1879, he had an early loss to William Muldoon at Gilmore Gardens, which was an early incarnation of Madison Square Gardens. So this was his first contact with Muldoon. It was not a title match, but he still could not beat the hot up incoming New York City policeman turned wrestler. Well, you know, that'll happen when you come across the, the greatest of, a, of an era, of a decade, of a generation. You know, he, he came across a solid man and he earned a, a notch in the belt of that young gunslinger's career. I wonder where we've heard of William Muldoon before. I don't know, it, it's vaguely familiar. August 6th, 1879, he arrives in Kansas City to sign a contract to wrestle Crystal for $250 aside. Uh, Andre Crystal, another one of those names you hear all the time during this era. Another French wrestler who just went coast to coast wrestling all the big names. 
Maybe we'll do an episode on him at some point. He just seems a little more obscure. He's kind of a very much a background character, but he's in the mix constantly when you hear these stories of matches during this era. That's because he's from the Cristal region of France. And if he's not from the Cristal region of France, you don't call it that. But he was definitely a integral uh, underlying character in all of these early uh, iterations of professional wrestling. And you can only call him that if he's from the Champagne region of France. Otherwise, he's just a sparkling wrestler. Ah, uh, uh, that's what it was. Yes, yes. I had my territories all crossed up. And then we get another weird one on September 3rd, 1879. Headline, hijinks among the champion wrestlers. When in the dressing room at the Detroit Opera House, Bauer and Colonel McLaughlin exchanged words, and McLaughlin punched Bauer in the head several times, also punching Andre Cristal, who interfered between the two men. Hijinks at the Detroit Opera House involving the Colonel and Cristal region of France, you say? That sounds like a capital time. I bet that was good for business. Were they setting up an angle, you think? Was this an early hippodrome? I am not sure, but according to um, the September 4th, 1879 issue of the Cincinnati Daily Star, Theobo Bauer, the Greco-Roman wrestler, who had a personal encounter with Colonel McLaughlin in the Opera House the other night, challenged the Colonel to a mixed wrestling match for a thousand aside in an enclosed room in the presence of only the umpire, press, and judges. I'm assuming umpire means referee, old-timey speak, press screwing things up, what can you do? But it seems like a weird situation where they probably did get in an actual fist fight in the green room. These things do happen backstage, unfortunately. And to save face, he offered a crazy challenge that he knew the man would not take because tickets were not being sold and therefore there was no house to get a percentage of. The challenge to save face, that you know you will not have to back up with an actual match. It's too bad that they, they didn't allow the press and the radio media at the time access because what he's talking about is perhaps the first ever pitch of a empty arena match. It's just how do you capitalize on that without the, the, rev, the TV revenue? You can't do it with an audience. It was a clever play though, old chap, way ahead of the curve. But he did run into a career defining match soon after. It was January 23rd, 1880 his big match against William Muldoon, now in Madison Square Gardens, as covered by the New York Times. The match took place in front of 4,000 fans in Madison Square Garden. Henry Hill, once again, was the referee. Two out of three falls under Greco-Roman rules. Muldoon weighed in at 204 pounds to Bowers 180. But size difference aside, Bauer went out very aggressively against the New York City cop and picked him up and slammed him several times, but Muldoon always managed to land on his hands and knees. But the larger Muldoon withstood the technical assault by Bauer and pinned the French champ at the 43-minute mark for the first fall. How fucking hard is it to wrestle, to grapple, to do anything athletic for 43 minutes without a break? You are pushing your your capabilities, the, the, the capabilities of the human body beyond the output that they are designed to go. You're talking about doing permanent damage when you go that deep into a war of attrition. And when you're talking about doing that against the guy that's going to define professional wrestling going into the next century, for the next decade, you are hitting that, that freight train when it's just getting up to full speed. That is the career of William Muldoon, the solid man. And it's Greco-Roman rules. He's got a 20 pound advantage and that is his style. 
And it's it's just really a stacked deck against our boy, oh, Tibby. I hope Thibodeau can come through and seize the day, but William Muldoon is a solid man. And that's just some, you know, it's a, it was too hard to overcome all of those things at once, I think. And one more thing to mention here, they didn't fight on a canvas or in a ring. They fought on a platform with carpet on it. The rug burns must have been terrible. How do you think they set up Madison Square Garden to present that? Was it a stage? Did they raise a platform they in the middle? Pl yeah, they did a platform. So it was a platform in the middle with a carpet on top of it because as anybody who wrestled their siblings or cousins or friends in the living room knows, a carpet is enough padding to prevent concussions, broken bones, and or sad butts let alone skin knees. It's the only thing keeping my little brother from the tombstone on the driveway. The second fall ended in 20 minutes when Bauer slammed Muldoon on his head and landed all in a heap, as the press put it, with his shoulders down. So it's now one and one going into the third fall, and the third was competitive, but according to reporters, Bauer had a back hold on Muldoon and for some reason let go with one hand to wipe sweat from his own eyes and Muldoon instantly landed an arm drag and pinned Bauer for the win. Muldoon was declared the new champion and he was carried out by his friends in celebration. The beginning of a championship reign that would last a decade and define the sport and evolve the sport into what we know it today and it's great to just hear, you know, the press box quarterbacks talking about, oh, why would he, why, you know, maybe his, you know, his eye was out of the socket. You have, these guys, they, it's, they had no idea the war of attrition to have gone through a two out of three falls match with a bigger, stronger, younger, hungrier competitor that is looking to dethrone you. There's a reason that Bauer came out and threw everything he had at Muldoon in the beginning because he knew that he had to give his best effort to retain his kingdom. And at the end of the day, his best shot didn't get the job done. And there's something psychologically devastating about being the champion who is the stepping stone for a legend. You look at, uh, you know, Sadie versus uh, Cassius Clay. You look at Muhammad Ali versus Leon Spinks. You look at, in worked matches, the Iron Sheik to Hulk Hogan. You know, there's always gonna be those people who were the greatest as far as anyone knew, but then they lose, they lose to a legend, and it's the legend that everyone remembers. The, uh, you know, Apollo Creed in Rocky, for totally. example. My, my head actually went to a much darker place, as it often does. I was thinking Evan Tanner, man. That was the first head that popped, name that popped into my head before Rich Franklin, you know, before setting up that whole division. And a lot of people don't know how tragically that ended, but talk about a guy who was just a, for lack of a better term, transitional champion. And that can be a really uh, demoralizing thing for these guys because they're not properly remembered for their accomplishments. And he did get another crack at Muldoon. Muldoon did give him a rematch. That was on January 27th, 1883 in St. Louis. He lost to Muldoon again in front of the largest crowd ever in that city to watch wrestling. And then he lost again to the ever dangerous but constantly drunk Clarence Whistler a month later. It's funny because it reminds me of this other story uh, that my high school football coach used to tell us, and that is, don't be Wally Pip. Do you know who Wally Pip is? I do not. Wally Pip was the starting 
shortstop for the New York Yankees before Lou Gehrig. He was an all-star, two-time all-star, and he felt he could coast. He felt he could take a break. He gave, he was like, sure, kid. I had, a, I had a hard night last night partying with the ladies. Go ahead, take the field today. He gave his spot up willingly to the man that ended up breaking the consecutive game streak in Major League Baseball. And Wally Pipp will never be remembered except for the guy that you don't want to be. And this is another example of that. And it's really unfortunate because Bauer did some tremendous things in his career and for the sport. And whether these matches were legitimate shoot matches or worked hippodromes, um, things kind of go onto a slide. On February 23rd, 1883, he lost a pair of matches to Duncan Ross in Florida. Ross was a big name in catch wrestling at the time, having lost to Edwin Beebe in 1881 to establish the American Catch Wrestling Championship. And in March, they rematched in Savannah, Georgia to much fanfare and again that September in 1883. That was very weird. And in March, they rematched in Savannah, Georgia to much fanfare. And again, that September in New York City. Speaking of New York City, also in 1883, according to the New York Tribune, he is arrested for non-payment of up to $800 worth of booze under suspicion of selling it himself for the sake of defrauding his creditors. So this man was arrested, and I've seen different articles. Some claim it was $90, some claim it was the $830 mark, but he bought a bunch of booze on credit, sold it off so it couldn't be repossessed, and then kept the money. So he was arrested for this and taken to trial for fraud, kind of a dirty move. And also just think about how much fucking money in late 1800s $830 is. That's a goddamn fortune. That has to be like a boat of booze. I don't know how you serve booze back in those days. Did they use the metric system? Was it the English system? Was it, you know, I, I have no idea, but that is a lot of booze. That is a lot of money. And no wonder somebody was pissed at him pulling a scam like this. Yeah, that's kind of incredible because the one thing the story was lacking was it, it, it needed a little more carny. And now it's got a little more carny. He was running a liquor scam. I respect that. I, I mean, yeah, $800 in liquor. What was he, he? Was he working the bar at his own events? I mean, did he just carry around a trailer with a bunch of liquor to all his shows and he was he was operating the, the house? I don't I don't understand how you even move that much. <laughs> he was selling bottles of booze at, at the at the merch table. Yeah, totally. In January 1884, after John L. Sullivan claimed he could knock down a bear with a punch, a sports writer in New Mexico reminisced about watching Bauer force a bear off the platform in a wrestling match. Once again, sumo rules versus a bear, about the only way you can really compete on equal footing with a beast like that. Yeah, I don't know how you punch a bear, but I appreciate that he had an alternate strategy to what we previously discussed. I mean, you got to do something. Maybe, yeah, get its hands up and then you go for a, a duck under, take the back. I don't know. And how well trained was this bear? And was the bear competitive? Was the bear a worker? Was this a uh, hippodrome with a bear? I don't know. Maybe nobody will ever know. Maybe nobody could know. Moving on, on March 5th, 1884, again versus William Muldoon in San Francisco. Lost in two out of three falls, Greco-Roman rules at the Mechanics Pavilion. So Muldoon gives him more shots or maybe more works, who knows, but clearly he is now in the position of not being the top guy. He's the guy who loses to the top guys. And that's an inevitable aspect of the life cycle of a champion. And I think, I think it should be 
a different category of a fighter's career, what you've done after a fighter has ascended to the top of the mountain as high as they're gonna go. When you, whether it's Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, the list goes on, you can look at what their career does after that because then it's about money fights, it's about legacy fights, it's about rematches that aren't really necessarily for ranking but more for personal story and finishing trilogies and things like that. I think that it makes sense that he's in this position because he's one of the few guys that has the name credibility that getting a victory on is gonna further elevate Muldoon he, I mean, Muldoon doesn't have a bunch of opponents at his caliber to choose from. So it makes sense. And now he's getting the opportunity to showcase that match on the West Coast. There was also a limited number of top-notch Greco-Roman wrestlers. Because keep in mind, yeah. William Muldoon was a Greco-Roman specialist. And catches catch can and collar and elbow were becoming more popular because they're more exciting to watch. So maybe he just needed good competition in the rules he was used to. And now we come to one of the greatest articles I have ever found. It was the December 16th, 1887 edition of the New York Times. Article titled, Burglars Attacked by Bears. On the <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. On the night of December 16th, Emile Renier, the French wrestler, who in partnership with Theobode Bauer, keeps a saloon at number 102 Prince Street, was awakened from his sleep by the restlessness of his wrestling bears, which are confined in the rear of the premises. Proceeding downstairs to ascertain what was the matter, Renier saw three burglars escaping by the rear of the store and chased them until they ran into the arms of Detective John Murphy of the 8th Precinct. The prisoners proved to be George Edwards, alias Traynor, of number 141 Clinton Street, George Thompson of the same address, and John Atrada of number 117 Bleecker Street. They give these guys his addresses. That's kind of fun. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> it was then discovered that the burglars had entered the saloon from the rear for the purpose of stealing. They had secured three boxes of cigars and two sets of billiard balls when Rainier's wrestling bears, not being on terms of acquaintanceship with the intruders, proceeded to attack them. That, I love the wording of that. It is so it, it's yeah, it makes, so eloquent. It makes the bears sound like such gentlemen. Like, say there, old bean, do you know these gentlemen? I dare say I do not. Well, shall we give them a thrashing? Oh, I say we must. Yes, proper form. I don't know. Do we deserve to light their cigar in our presence? I imagine being that guy. You're like, yeah, look at these cigars. <laughs> you light it up, and there's like a silhouette of the bear behind <laughs> you, all Scooby-Doo style. I mean. Imagine you're like, please lock us up. We just broke into the pro wrestling bar and there were bears and then we were saved by the pro wrestlers. <laughs> I, uh, oh my gosh. And now we know what he was doing with that booze, by the way. Most likely. And it was also around this time that he married a woman who had much property to her name and he reportedly invested his wrestling winnings in, into San Francisco real estate. And he owned most of Alameda Street. A lot of property in the Tenderloin district. He also began having serious legal problems as well as trouble stemming from drinking. I found almost more articles than I could read about him throwing money around, making shady deals with corrupt cops, running a red light district, bribing politicians, and various other crimes. The biggest pair I found being, and these ones are bananas because I don't know if I just solved an old crime. Because um, sometimes, I'll, I'll back this up a bit, it's hard to find information on wrestlers with strange names. So trying to find Theobode Bauer in the archives, sometimes you have to type in 
Theo Bauer. Sure. And I also found evidence of there being a wrestler on the East Coast named Theodore Bauer, um, who, uh, you know, I, I found like a picture of him on an old cigarette trading card. I could find very little information. I couldn't tell if maybe this is actually the same guy as Theobode Bauer. I just don't have the information. But in this article, he is listed as Theo, but it's in San Francisco and it's crazy drunken criminal behavior. So I feel like it's the right guy. Um, July 21st, 1894, he is charged for public drunkenness and interfering with the police when he showed up to the station to raise hell when a friend of his was arrested for assaulting a blacksmith named J.B. Claveri. So this guy just shows up drunk as shit to a police station, trying to pick fights with cops for arresting his friend, having the audacity to arrest his friend for beating up a blacksmith. So he tried to pull a reverse Terminator 1 and storm the police station, but to get his homie because his homie like punked a blacksmith, which is cool that there was even a blacksmith in this story or at that time, but that's what kind of crazy maniacs we're talking about. And he goes into the police station to like pick a fight with the cops and get his friend out. I mean, that's actually pretty cool. And then it gets wilder. Um, April 12th, 1889, according to the Wichita Eagle, I found a, the same article several other places later, but that's the first place I found it. A Los Angeles blacksmith named John Bryan, any possible connection to JB Claverette? Keep in mind, there weren't great records back then. I feel like this is the same guy. So a Los Angeles blacksmith named John Bryan and a French woman were found in bed, both shot in the head. The woman was dead and the man dying, and it was assumed by the police that it was a murder-suicide, but the blacksmith claimed that ex-wrestling champ Theobode Bauer, again in the article named Theodore, is the one who shot him. <laughs> Whoa. So ba he claimed that Bauer and others came in and murdered them both. The police wrote it off as a murder-suicide, but I'm very convinced now that Theobode Bauer had some sort of long-running feud with a blacksmith and ended up murdering the blacksmith and his girlfriend. What in the name of Chris Benoit did you uncover, old chap? That is pretty damning evidence. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I stumbled upon this by accident, but it seems to make a lot of sense considering this guy was more or less the drunken crime boss of the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. You know, he, he had the cops on the payroll. He was constantly like bailing out uh, uh, prostitutes after they were fighting, after stealing. Like, there was so much weird crime that if I compiled it all, we would be talking about it for two to three more hours. And frankly, no one wants to listen to my voice that much. Again, August 22nd, 1889, he bails out two women of ill repute who are fighting over stolen jewelry. He seems to just be throwing money around, running a red light district, possibly killing people. On March 13th, 1898, the Los Angeles Herald covered Bauer petitioning the court to gain full control of the real estate owned by his deceased wife, Leone, which consists of real estate on Alameda Street in the Tenderloin and household interests in the same vicinity. The personal property consists of enough furniture to fill a big hotel, $400 in the bank, valuable jewelry, saloon fixtures, and wine and liquors. What a weird compilation of inheritance, but apparently his wife passed, and I couldn't find many details on that. And they had all these assets to add to what he already was owning and running, 
further cementing his property value in this area. So he rebounded from worked wrestler to possible legit champ, maybe, maybe not. And now his backslide has turned him into a drunken criminal, I wouldn't say mastermind, but I think kingpin would be the right word. Yeah, he's like a, a bootleg, like Captain Planet criminal now. He's like kind of like softly messing things up and not really doing a lot of problems, just bailing hookers out of jail and like casually killing blacksmiths. I mean, maybe that's why we don't have enough blacksmiths today. I don't see enough blacksmiths and I'm really, I'm really still, I'm really stuck on that, man. I think he, I think he killed the blacksmith. And I think maybe, do we know that it wasn't his wife in bed with the blacksmith? I have no information, unfortunately. I wish I did. If we ever get a time machine, yeah, we will man. go investigate and do an on-the-spot report. He also almost became the victim of a swindle. On March 14, 1900, the San Francisco Call covered the case of Mrs. Jelch, a.k.a. Durand of Alsace, or Alsace, I don't speak, sp uh, I almost said Spanish. <laughs> I don't speak French, I've never been there, I don't know how to pronounce the town, I apologize to anyone who lives there, but she showed up and sued Bauer, claiming to be his abandoned wife from New York City, originally from France. Now that Bauer had become wealthy, it was a blackmail attempt to take his money. The judge saw through it and ruled against her, and in fact wanted her arrested, but she ran out of the courtroom and disappeared. Some accounts claim that she spent all her money trying to sue him and ended up as a maid in San Francisco. Wow. Well, you, you definitely want to avoid, uh, what would you call that? Crazy like that? Stalkers like that? That's terrifying. And I also have a little bit of wonder if that might have been a legitimate complaint because keep in mind this guy yeah, is clearly yeah. a, a carny working weirdo who I, I could see him having a wife in every major city um, totally and it just seems like it might be on uh, you know might be on the level it also may be because he was constantly in the news about throwing his money around and being a goofball she could get a piece of it yeah carnies swindling carnies swindling carnies the circle of life god bless their little hearts Oh, a worker getting worked by a worker. It's a beautiful thing. And then towards the end of his life, things just kept falling apart for him more and more. The Waterbury Democrat, a Connecticut paper in November 26, 1901 covered, and I quote, Theobald Bauer, once the champion wrestler of the world, but for many years known in Los Angeles as the King of Little Perry, had been committed to a sanitarium. For a long time past, Bauer had been incompetent to manage his considerable property interests that consisted of Alameda Street cribs and dives, his fortune is rated at $250,000. So that is a goddamn fortune. Like that's, yeah, I, I would possibly commit some serious crimes for that money today, let alone back in those days. But this is somebody who clearly had uh, some, some, some demons. He was wrestling with some uh, in, internal uh, problems and was so drunk and such a social problem that he had to be committed. Yeah, that's a um, that's a, a tragic end to the to the rise and fall of the 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 shining star. You know, that's it's a tragic microcosm of of the timetable of a lot of celebrity life life cycles. Right, you go from this rising star to defining the business to uh, being the the sort of the benchmark in the business to then losing that spot to the next big thing. 
to then the Charlie Sheen phase of your career where you're all tiger's blood and you know prostitute alley in San Francisco real estate dealings I don't know and get and killing blacksmiths and unfortunately he died in the sanitarium most likely December 29th 1901 but I've also seen reports of it being early January 1902 I could not find his obituary to verify most agree that alcoholism was the cause of his ruin and his death for the last few years of his life he was described as an imbecile being led around like a child too drunk to recognize anyone or perform basic tasks an organized crime boss in the area had taken over his business holdings and gave him an allowance to drink every day i could only find references to his obituaries not the obituaries themselves but they were apparently less than kind in their assessment of who he was and how he lived his life so this is a man who at the end of his life he ended up with a fortune but he just he didn't know how to be a human being so he was just drunk a disaster throwing his money around to the point where even a fellow organized crime boss most likely was like dude i'm gonna take care of this for you because you're a mess here's yeah. uh, a wooden nickel i don't know how much uh getting drunk cost in the year 1900 but he was just like here you you just go drink i'll take care of this and a man who was worth a fortune a man who wrestled in front of thousands in Madison Square Garden, a man who went coast to coast as one of the biggest wrestling stars of his day, who ended up owning vast tracts of land, we'll just make a Monty Python reference there, dies like a cartoon hobo in a sanitarium because of his love of the bottle. It, it also, in hearing this, it makes me just naturally wonder if there was any aspect of say, you know, CTE involved, the, the rapid deterioration of a guy who is the top grappler in his era to, to, to be at that level, the, the level of mental acuity and sharpness required and the decline of that, just from my own understanding of how things work, alcohol doesn't seem like it would be capable of taking a man that far that fast without other aspects. I wonder if he had something, you know, think about like Muhammad Ali. Now imagine if you were taking Muhammad Ali in his later years and, and no one understood, you know, head injuries and mental illness and you were just feeding him alcohol to sort of appease him. I could absolutely see a scenario of something along those lines because you're talking about a guy who is you know he wrestled in madison square garden on a carpet the head injuries the trauma the things that were not understood at the time it, it just my in you know my spider sense is telling me that maybe there was more at play there it's possible but you also have to remember the first article we found about this guy was him getting in a drunken fight with another wrestler in France. So this is someone yeah. who clearly had some problems, but getting uh, dropped on your head for probably 20 years has uh, never done anyone any favors. So there's a lot of questions that just won't be answered yeah. because they can't be answered. But holy crap, what a life this guy led. He clearly had some problems, but he reached heights of carny swindles that I am honestly jealous of. This is a guy who more or less pushed the worked level of a legitimate sport, the hippodroming of professional wrestling, to the limit, to its breaking point, to the point where the press had to call him out about him single-handedly turning a sport into a betting disaster that cannot be trusted. And in a way, that's a hell of an accomplishment. 
Totally. He was one of the the last people that the press actually came at for exposing professional wrestling as a hippodrome, as a work, back when it was presented as a shoot, as a legitimate competition. So he really was a pioneer in this business. And as a couple of carnies at heart, I just say bless his little, uh, bless his little soul. That's right. Tip my top hat to you, old chap. So that's the story of Dubo Bauer. Thank you so much for joining us on this crazy adventure of faking matches, wrestling matches, international travel, crime, possibly murder, and a tragic ending, which seems to be a theme in professional wrestling. So we'll be back again in two weeks. And in the meantime, if you listen on iTunes, please give us a review. It means a lot to us, so long as it's good. You know, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, send us an email. It's right there on our uh, social media. Say hi, let us know what you think. If you've ever wrestled a bear, we wanna hear your story. But until then, for Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. Good night, everybody. Thank you, old chap. Cut Prince Martini. (laughs) 